Now, as we start to push through the text a bit, let me just say that to be given the job of trying to explain and articulate God's love feels to me slightly impossible. Uh, because it's huge. I also know that it's slightly impossible because the Bible tells me so. Um, in the book of Ephesians, page, uh, you can look it up in your blue Bible, page 815, or th- chapter 3, 17 through 19, it says as follows, uh, Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will go down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to fully understand. So this love that God has for us is so great that we will not fully understand it. So I just wanted to start my sermon by telling you I'm not going to accomplish my goal today of fully explaining the love of God because it's just too big. So my goal today has been narrowed to a little bit of an aspect of the love of God. I see God's love and the topic of God's love pushing all the way through the entire Bible from Genesis through Revelation. And I think it's possible to see that gracious, compassionate, um, merciful, pursuing God, full of love, a covenant of love to a thousand generations, the whole of our story. But today we're going to focus particularly in on what Jesus tries to explain to us about God's love. And we're going to look at the parable of lost things in Luke chapter 15, as I mentioned on page 729. So let's start really quick by just explaining what is a parable. And I I don't know if you guys grew up in Sunday school, but I grew up hearing that a parable was a heavenly message with an earthly meaning. And it was a fun little pithy way to explain what still sounded inexplainable to me. Um, I was like, so wait, it's a heavenly message, but with an earthly meaning. So does it mean anything right now? Or does it just mean something there? And I think we've maybe found a couple of different understandings of parable if we look at Jesus' time and context. Not long after the time of Jesus, one of the rabbis explained it this way. Rabbi Yossi said, Imagine a big basket full of produce without any handle, so heavy that it could not be lifted until one clever man came and made handles for it. And then it began to be carried by its handles. So too, until Solomon came, no one could properly understand the words of the Torah, but when Solomon arose, he provided handles, and all began to comprehend the Torah. What Rabbi Yossi is saying here is that a parable, and he's talking about this right before, a parable is like taking something like the Torah as a basket and putting handles on it. Has anyone ever gone to the grocery store and picked up a grocery basket? Like the ones, you know, in the stack, the red ones, yeah? How helpful would that basket be to your shopping if you couldn't put your arm through it and hold it right here and then grab something off the shelf? Very unhelpful, right? You'd be trying to hold it like this, and then you'd be kicking things into you have to put it down, pick it back up. It's not going to work. So a parable, according to the ancient rabbis, is something that gives us handles to understand a bigger truth. Does that kind of make sense? The thing that I love about this is in the Hebrew translation of what Rabbi Yossi says here, he actually says the word for handle, he used oznaim. Say oznaim. The word oznaim in Hebrew means ears. Huh. So he says that when you teach with parables, it's as though you've given a basket ears. So it kind of looks like this to me, right? That all of a sudden, I have ears that can hear. That sounds like something Jesus might have said. 
um, and that now I can start to understand God's story and God's commands. So I think that's what Jesus does as he teaches with parables. He gives us handles or he gives us ears that can hear these great truths that he's trying to explain, though, as Paul says in Ephesians, we can't fully understand it. Uh, Ken Bailey, actually, he's the scholar. Um, He studied a lot in the Middle East. He grew up in the Middle East and experienced a lot of his understanding of the scriptures. He's written some incredible books, including this one. And a lot of what I'm going to teach today is taken from that book. So if you want to know more information about how to understand some of Jesus' parables in their cultural context, you can read the book. Or you could just listen for the next few minutes, and I'll explain a lot of it then. But he says this about a parable. A parable is not a delivery system for an idea. It's a house in which the listener is invited to dwell. Isn't that kind of fun? So right now I just want to invite all of us to just hang out in this house that Jesus is building as he starts to tell this parable of lost things. So I just want to invite you to relax. If you think you have already heard this parable your whole life, you've learned it from knee-high to now, and you are sure that you have completely mastered all that Jesus is trying to say to you in the lost parable of lost things, then I encourage you to just humble yourself slightly and pull on some of those ears and see if maybe we can hear something new. If the only thing you've ever heard about, like the parable of the prodigal son, and that phrase is used a lot in American colloquialism, if you've heard about prodigal sons before and that's about all you know, well, then you can also join us as we all learn together in this next journey. So let's, I'm going to invite you all to just ponder this story in a fresh new way. What we're going to start to do is we're going to dig. So this is a picture of an archaeological dig happening at Atel presently, just this last summer, um, in Israel, in the Shvela, um, Tel Safi, um, which is really um, like Tel Gott, like you might, anyway, it's, it's cool. All right, uh, David and Goliath. So I get a little bit geeky. I wanted to grow up and be an archaeologist when I was a kid. And um, actually, we had a really weird cemetery in the hill I was growing up when, um, yeah, Santa Rosa. And it kind of looked like bunny ears. Like it wasn't like a steeple. The, the cemetery from a distance looks like bunny ears to me, kind of like poking up. And it, and it was kind of pink. So I thought maybe giant bunny, you know, sort of lived there. And I said, Mom, what's the bunny ear thing? She said, oh, it's a cemetery. So what's a cemetery? She said, well, when people die, we bury them and their bones, you know, go into the ground. I'm like, wait, wait, so there's things we could dig up there? Like, I was a kid and not at all freaked out about the fact that there were dead things there. I was like, wow, so there's like archaeology going on. She's like, no, no, we don't dig up those bones. So um, I like to dig and I like to dig in Israel, but I also like to dig when I come to the text. And when I open up Luke 15 and I start to read, I recognize that these fancy glasses that I have in now, I can't see you at all. As I put them on, the ones that I wear are made in the 21st century in the United States. And so I read the text through that lens in an American, Protestant, Western perspective. It's hard to start to come to stories that are this familiar and try to take off those lenses and put on maybe lenses that would have been more common to be heard in Jesus' day. Anthropologists say it this way. Anthropologists are people that study people, study societies. They say what everybody knows is never explained in the parable. Does that make sense? So if there's something everybody knows, the author who's explaining it doesn't have to explain that. So if I said to you, 9-11, I don't have to explain 
Well, a while ago, this thing happened. You guys all know that. That's a cultural key. There are cultural keys that are pushing all the way through this story Jesus is going to tell. And when we start to understand and dig and get those cultural keys, we start to understand more of the character of God and more of God's great love for us. And so I hope we're going to kind of walk through this together today and see what Jesus is trying to teach. In the Middle East, in Jesus' day, he doesn't need to say, God's love for you is boundless. That's a very Western way to talk about God. To be able to sit down and go, well, let me explain. Uh, God's love for you is never ending, and there's not really anything that you can do to stop. And all these sort of Greek, Western thought, linear thought ways would be ways we would understand it. But Jesus is in the Middle East in the first century in Israel, and he's a Jew, so he is teaching his people, and he says, let me tell you a story. And that process of let me tell you a story about God's great boundless love is going to be encountered for us here as opposed to sitting and trying to teach us three points that we're going to walk home with. Does that kind of make sense? Nod. You guys can be loud. Raise your hand. Ask questions anytime you want. All right. Okay. So we have to dig a bit because Jesus is brilliant and he knows his text. And could his indescribable impact on history be possible were he not brilliant? No. So let's start to understand this incredible teaching. All right, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. You got your Bibles, or you've got it on your smartphone, and we're going to start to read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided this property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's the end of our reading for today. So let's take a look a bit at the setting. What is going on as Jesus is hanging out in his community? Remember, Jesus is a Torah-observant Jew in the first century, and he's in the Galilee region, and he's hanging out with other Torah-observant Jews. They're trying to all love God through their obedience to the commands, and they're sitting there having this conversation. And now what happens? Tax collectors and sinners start to gather around. Now, You can imagine maybe the scene. Maybe it's similar to a scene like us tonight where we're all sitting here and we're hanging out and then all of a sudden, and I'll let you pick who you think in your mind wouldn't be welcome in a setting like this. They start to come in and they start to hang out and they start to spend time. And not only do they come on in and they kind of hang out in the back, but they come in and they fill up the first few rows and I'm thrilled about it. And so we all start to have a conversation where maybe their language isn't perfect. It's not all cleaned up yet. Maybe they're dressing a little bit provocatively. Maybe they're acting a bit different. That's the scene. Now, in Jesus' day, there were discussions about how to handle a scenario like this. There were different choices amongst different communities out of how to respond to people like tax collectors and sinners. So there were people, a group called the Essenes. Have you guys heard of the Essenes before? Maybe a little bit. The Essenes were a sect, um, one of the more branch-out sects in Judaism in the first century, and they lived in a community by the Dead Sea, and their answer to tax collectors and sinners and people acting not quite right was to remove themselves from the society. Does that make sense? Yeah? Do you know people of faith who do that today? Sure you do. We all, nothing's new under the sun. We're all trying to figure all this stuff out together, right? So as we start to encounter maybe somebody who's making some choices or some lifestyle decisions we're uncomfortable with, we make a decision. You know what? I think I just need to step back and we're all going to remove ourselves from that entirely. It was a choice that they made in response to the behavior that they saw. Now the Pharisees made the decision to not remove themselves entirely. They made the decision to continue to live amongst the people whom they referred to the Am Ha'aretz, the people of the land, but they decided that they wouldn't share meals with those people because there was issues of cleanliness. And so they didn't want to sit down with those people and become unclean. 
So as Jesus is there, and now these Am Haaretz, the people of the land, tax collectors and sinners and whatnot, we know prostitutes were following all sorts of people, start to come and gather around, there's a question. How do we respond to this? And there's a problem. There's some discomfort with the fact that this rabbi Jesus is sitting with these people and sharing a meal. Not just sitting, but they're upset that he's welcoming them and eating with them. Because there's an issue of cleanliness and impurity there. In the Middle East, family time, meal time is significantly important still today. When I travel there, there are people that I visit in Israel that if I don't sit down with them while I'm there and have a meal, then there's some insult that has happened. And so I always, every time I go, I have to plan like a whole week, two weeks afterwards just to make sure I make the rounds. And I, I, there's a great, beautiful, still today, amongst the broader Middle East, not just in Israel, but amongst the broader, to have hospitality, to sit and share a meal, to break bread together. And that if you have done that together with one another in that community, there's an intimacy there. That's different from, oh, it's, it's a coffee break and we went to Starbucks together and we both ordered something and we sat down. In Jesus' context, and he doesn't have to explain this because everybody would have known it, the power of a meal is important. And that issue is going to be pervasive throughout the rest of this parable. Who do we eat with? Who do we sit with? And what type of community is Jesus trying to build? And how do we learn about God's love through this? Okay, this is another picture of, in the first century, a triclinium, which was coming in from the Roman community, but how people would maybe recline and eat, which would be the scene for the Last Supper. Okay, so we talked about Am Haaretz. Let me just teach you one other word, Havarim. Can you say Havarim? That word means friends. And specifically in Jesus' day, if you were a group of friends of Havarim, then you were a group of people who maybe had a profession and a trade. Maybe you were fishermen. Maybe you were stonemasons. Maybe you were carpenters. But you had decided together that you would study the Torah in your spare time. So if we're talking about that category of Havarim and friends, it could just be friends like we're all friends here, but it can also mean a specific group of people who are gathered together to understand how to love God through the text. Okay, so what did we find out right at the very beginning? Then we find out that Jesus is sitting with people and there's some issue over who he's sitting with and how that's going. So he decides to tell them this parable. How many of you, as you've been looking through the parables before, have you looked and said, oh, there's three here? Lost sheep, right? Lost coin and lost son or sons. But the singular Greek tells us that this is one parable with three acts that Jesus is telling. All right? So I know it's a long chapter we just read, but it's so good to read it all together because it all flows together in some pretty beautiful ways. So let's start in it together. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. We should stop right there. That's a lot. I don't know if you've ever traveled or you've, has anyone ever actually seen a sheep other than in a zoo? Right? Yeah. Okay. Good job. A hundred sheep is a lot of sheep, right? That's a lot of sheep. And so when this man, if he has a hundred sheep, he's wealthy. He's wealthy and well off. And so this shepherd's there and he's got a hundred sheep, but he loses one. Oh no. So as he loses one and he puts, he leaves the 99 in the open country and he goes after that lost sheep until he finds it. Now, 
Who does the act of finding? The shepherd. Does the sheep do anything to be found? No. So it doesn't like obey and and list all of the great rules of, of everything else in order to be found. No. The sheep is just lost. And typically when, it, I don't know if you've ever been around sheep, but they're not very bright. And, um, and they tend to just follow the sheep bottom right in front of them. And they just go in that same direction. So if a sheep gets lost, what they do is they just freak out and they hide because they are not protected. And they'll generally be, so the shepherd's not going to have an easy time finding the sheep. Maybe the sheep is bleeding. Maybe it's crying out. <laughs> So maybe there's some clue as to go and find, thank you very much, uh, maybe there's a clue for the shepherd as to where the shepherd can find that sheep, but that sheep is not there with smoke signals, SOS, I'm right over here, don't worry, you can find me. So the shepherd has to do great work to find the sheep, and the sheep is not doing anything to be found, okay? I think this is important because it's going to communicate to us how we understand God. By the way, anyone ever heard Psalm 23? The Lord is my, I shall not. He leads me beside. That's good job. As familiar as you are with that psalm, just as much in Jesus' day. So the moment Jesus says there was a shepherd, everyone knows that that psalm, as well as many others, that the form of shepherd throughout the whole of the Hebrew scriptures is a symbol for God. So the moment you start to say there's a shepherd, Jesus' audience is starting to think, okay, it's a parable, and he's, which Jesus told great parables, but there's 4,000 other recorded parables in rabbinic literature. Those of you who were at the Rabbi Moshe event heard more about that. And so Jesus is a great parables teller, and they're accustomed to this, and they're now waiting for what's going to happen. So just start to allow yourself to know that there's some symbolism here for what the roles are as somebody who seeks and somebody who gets found. Okay? All right. So that poor lost sheep gets found. And when the shepherd finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and then hikes it all the way back. 50 to 70 pounds. Joyful. That shepherd really wants to bring that sheep home. He joyfully says, yes, I will pick up that heavy sheep. And by the way, shepherds in the Middle East say that sheep, when they get into this state, they get so scared that their legs just become jelly and they're like, you know, that's it. And so they have to be picked up and taken home. And so this shepherd now picks up this 50, 70 pound sheep, throws it on and is like pleased about that kind of weight, you know, all the way back. So we've got a shepherd who seeks We've got a sheep who just sits and freaks out, but who is still heavy. So now there's some work that has to be done to bring that sheep home. Is it enough for the shepherd just to look and go, oh, found you, good sheep, and then head back home? That's not being restored. That's not coming home. That's just being found. So the shepherd has to do some work now to bring that sheep home. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, goes home, calls all of his friends, his havarim, and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Now, in the Middle East, if you say, I'm going to invite a whole bunch of people over to my house and say, Rejoice, have a party, there's food involved. There's food and there's drink. 
By the way, if you want to rejoice at your house and you want to party, there should be food involved. Don't invite me if there's not food involved, all right? I can celebrate with all the rest of you, but at some point I'm going to be like, and now it's time to go because you didn't have any food. So we are going to have a party, and at that party and that meal, we're going to share together, all of us celebrate together. Is the party for the sheep? No, it's a sheep right? Okay, the sheep does not have a party hat on. It's not sitting there with its new fancy name tag or it's, uh, I don't know, all those dog clothes that are out now for animals. Like this is a domestic animal, right? But it's, it's not inside the home, right? This is a sheep. Who is the party for? The shepherd, The shepherd is the one who's thrilled. The shepherd says, come rejoice with me because I have found something that I loved that was lost. And I've been able to bring that home. So rejoice with me over my lost sheep. So the party's not for the sheep because it's a sheep. All right. All right. So then Jesus says, I tell you in that same way. Oh, by the way, there's a sheep. Would you want to carry that one all the way home? Yeah, 57 pounds, guys. Okay. In that same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So note carefully here that as Jesus is having this conversation with the spiritual leaders in his community, the religious leaders in his community, he is not saying to them, you guys are bad and what I'm doing is so great. He's simply saying, you have no need to repent. You're, you're good. But this lost person over here, they need to repent. So let's continue to look at the story Jesus tells. Now you notice how artful he is already as he starts to tell a story that involves rejoicing and tell a story that involves a value, right? One of a one hundred. One of a hundred needs to go be found. And we've talked about how Jesus would be, his audience would understand the shepherd as a model for for God the Father. Okay? Now, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Now we've moved. We've narrowed our scope. Is something one of a hundred worth value? Yeah. One of ten is of value? We've narrowed the scope. We've also increased value. We've moved from sheep to a coin. A silver coin worth a day's wages at least. This woman is searching for this. Okay? Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Does the coin do anything to be found? No, so it doesn't go, oh, she's looking for me. I'll just pop up right here and flip myself on the table. No, of course not. Now, the area in which it's lost is smaller, narrower than the area of the lost sheep. The lost sheep was wild, open wilderness. And now we have a woman looking in her home. Now, a first century home in the Galilee in Israel that Jesus is at would be about the size of a one-car garage for everything. Everybody, everything. And for those of you who've been, the rocks are significant. And there's dark black stone in the Galilee where the buildings would be made of. And there's not windows in the wall. There's tiny little slits to allow some air through. So it's dark, but she knows that this coin can be found. Right? 
It's possible. She knows where she lost it. It's somewhere in the house. She's going to light a lamp, and she's going to work hard and search everywhere to find this coin. And when she finds it, is the party for the coin? No, no, of course not. The party is for her because she has found it. Now, at this point, you should all be saying, okay, but if God is the shepherd, is God also the woman? Yes, according to Jesus. And according to Genesis chapter 1. God made male and female in his image. He created them, right? So if you're going to allow God, don't worry, I'm not getting crazy. I'm just talking about this great, don't freak out, all right? (laughs) Sit tight. I could tell you all like, oh my gosh. It's okay. If God is this, right, that's it, I'm out. Abraham's gone. You guys know what's coming, right? We know this parable well enough. God is shepherd. Now we've got this interesting story with this woman. And then God, of course, is the father welcoming home the lost son. Listen, you can't do that. God, Jesus is telling this parable that's pushing all the way through. It's one single parable, and he's setting it up this way. Now, I'm not saying at all that now you have to start changing your language that we don't see necessarily in the Torah about calling God now mother. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is that in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew scriptures, that God does use language for himself as shepherd. God uses a lot of language for himself as father. And yes, God does also use language for himself as mother in the Hebrew scriptures. It's imagery. He talks about how Israel is his firstborn son, that father language, but he also talks about nursing Israel, taking care of Israel. Jesus uses that language when he talks about a mother hen shielding its its chicks. It's not to say that God has gender. It's to say that God is bigger than gender. And if you look at Jesus' rabbinic teaching and how he's pushing through all of that, what you do see in every choice that he is making is that he is providing a way for men and women together to come and learn with him, to come and follow with him. And it's pretty phenomenal what he's doing and how he's inviting everyone in. So, there you go. Awesome, huh? I didn't write it. I'm just telling you. Jesus doing some stuff here. Okay. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Essentially, he says, your money or your life. Because in that type of Middle Eastern community, if there's insula living, it's communal living, we're all together. If I go to my dad and I say, give me my share, my dad has to sell his property that he is living on, that the whole household is living on in order to give me my share. And essentially what he's saying is, dad, I just want you to die. Hurry up and die so I can get my stuff and go. This is bad. This is, you know, as bad as, could you imagine walking up to your parents and saying this now? Would any of you, seriously, are you going to get on the phone tonight and say, hey, by the way, I know you're planning on giving me something when you die. Could you just hurry up and give that to me now? How, how great is that conversation? Marston's like, oh, I'll do that when I get home. How great is that conversation going to go over? Is that going to go over well? That is not going to go over well. Times 100 for Jesus's culture. So as Jesus starts to tell this story, everyone's like, oh, this guy's bad. Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father does. He divides his property, property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. In fact, in the Greek, there is, it's like a few days later. So he has to find some 
terrible buyer who's going to not mind dividing up a family that's wealthy, that's, that's well-to-do in the community. And so now they're part of their family inheritance, which has been sold, which you just never do, is now in someone else's hands. He sells that, and he goes and gets together all he has and goes off to a distant country for wild living. This is not good. He squanders all of his wealth and wild living. And in, he, in the Greek there, it doesn't say so much wild living as our imagination, but it's, it's extravagant. He just spends it all extravagantly. He just, he just doesn't take any care for it. Part of what's being asked here of Jesus, when they say, hey, he's hanging out with tax collectors and with sinners, part of the question is, Jesus, don't you care about how people behave? And Jesus' response is, yeah, sure I do. He takes sin very seriously. So let me tell you a story about some guy who messed up beyond anything you can imagine. Told his father he wanted him dead, destroyed his family home, took half of his stuff, went to a distant country, not where the people of Israel are living, but where the Gentiles are living, and he squanders everything quickly. After he spends everything, there's a severe famine in that whole country. He began to be in need, and so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country. Who is he working for now? Is he working for his loving father back home who's taking care of everything, who's making sure everything's good? No, now who's this guy working for? Not a follower of God's way, not one of God's people. He's in this distant country. A lot of scholars think that Jesus is probably talking about the Decapolis, where the pagans were living, which would just be right across the other side of the Sea of Galilee, easily seen as Jesus tells this story. And he says, he goes to that citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now be a first century Jew for a moment. At this part of the story, you're like, oh my goodness. Like, I thought it was bad when he said your money or your life to your dad. I thought it was bad. But now he's actually working for a Gentile, for a pagan, and he's feeding pigs? Like, this is the most unclean thing you could do. This is terrible. Jesus, it can't get any worse. This guy is terrible. And not only that, but he longs to feed, eat what the pigs are eating. He wants their food. He's so hungry. But does he get any food? No, he can't even eat. They don't even feed him what the pigs are feeding. So no one gives him anything. When he comes to his senses. Now, a lot of times when we read that, we think, ah, he now realized, wow, I'm such a jerk. I really shouldn't have done that to my dad, let alone the rest of the community. I can't believe I did this. You know, I'll go home. No, 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 no. The Greek says when he came to himself. And all that we know that he has realized is that he's hungry. That's all the text has said. I'm hungry. I can't get any food here. And then he says, he comes to his senses. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now here's where Jesus gets really cool again. That phrase, I've sinned against heaven and against you, occurs in the book of Exodus. Guess who says it? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, tired of that last plague of locusts, calls Moses in and says, You know what? I've sinned against the Lord and I've sinned against you. Can you please make this plague stop? 
So Jesus puts into the mouth of this son the words of Pharaoh, who enslaved the Israelites and who defied God a number of times and is going to do so again after this plague of locusts. He'll do it again for plague of darkness, and he'll do it again until death of the firstborn. At that time, he puts these words into Pharaoh, into this son's mouth. Now, are these words words of repentance? Was Pharaoh repentant when he said that to Moses? No, he just wanted the locusts to go away. So Jesus takes these words from Exodus, and he drops them right into this kid's mouth, and he gives him words that sound insincere to the ears of his hearers in that community. And remember who Jesus is talking to, right? He's having a conversation with teachers of the Torah, with teachers of the Pharisees. They know this text backwards and forward. So they can see the artistry that's coming through as they're having this conversation. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So I'm thinking he hasn't really repented. I think he's hungry. And I think he wants to say something in Jesus' story. He wants to say the thing he needs to say in order to get some food. And in order to manipulate his father once again. So he got up and he went to his father. And here's where it comes in. Are you ready? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Who does the finding? Who does the finding? The father. You can picture this father daily looking to see if today is the day his son's going to come home. Now, the son has this speech prepared. We've all agreed we don't think it's very sincere. And he has this speech prepared, and he's ready to manipulate the father, to bring him back in. And the father doesn't even give him time to get the words out. The father runs while he's still a long way off. This is unheard of in Middle Eastern culture. You do not see a man of the house, the man of the household, pick up his robes, show his ankles, and run. This is not something that the master of the house does. And yet he does it for his son. He gets ahead of the community response. He gets ahead of every other response that might come. And he runs and he grabs his son and he picks him up and he throws his arms around. And it's really, it's like in the Greek, and he can't stop kissing him. He's just so thrilled that this son has started to come home. Now, he doesn't know if there's a speech. The father doesn't know if there's true repentance. That is not necessary for the father's response. We should all be going, whoa, whoa. Right? There's something powerful here. And so now the son can get his words out. And I think at this point, don't they sound a bit different? He's been wrapped up in the father's arms. He's, the father can't stop kissing him. And, and he's just so, he's, he's seen his dad run. This is unheard of. And he gets scooped up into this type of love. And now he says, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even do the get to make me as one of your hired servants. Just now there's some shift we can start to hear. But the father said to his servants, which means they're with him. So the father has publicly humiliated himself by running, by running out to seek, to find, and the servants are following after him. And now the father is also setting an example for everybody else around to say, here's how we're going to treat this boy. 
I'm the dad, and I'm showing you how we're going to treat this boy. Quick, bring the best robe. It would be one of the father's robes. Put it on him. Is he clean yet? No, he's a mess. He's been traveling. He's been hanging out as a hired hand in a field feeding pigs. Does he have to get cleaned up before the father puts him in good clothes? Nope. Put the ring on his finger. A signet ring that would say, you can now be full members back into my household. You can buy and sell. This is the ring of the household. Put the sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf. So wait, there's a calf that has been fattened. He's been waiting, waiting for the time when he would be able to celebrate his son's return. Bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Who's the party for? Who's the party for? The father. It's not for the son. It's for the father. He says, this son of mine has come. Rejoice with me and be glad because I thought he was dead and he's alive. This is a party for me. And I've been waiting and waiting to throw this party. This party is for me. My son has come home. And they all began to celebrate. So we have this incredibly beautiful moment. And when that son unqualified rejection he gave his father, did he not? Completely rejected his dad. Unqualified rejection is met with unqualified acceptance. So the son's decision to completely reject his father, to treat him terribly, is instead met with, I will accept you before you say one word. I will accept you, run after you, pick up my robe, seek you, find you, bring you home, put my best robe on you, give you a ring, give you shoes for your feet. No, you don't have to get cleaned up yet. We're all, don't tell, it doesn't matter. Whatever you've done does not matter. In this story with Jesus, it doesn't matter. Is your heart right? It doesn't matter. Did you say the right words? It doesn't matter. God is running, God the Father is running to meet you. And you don't even have to have your heart right. And he can't wait. And he tells everybody, this is how we treat people who are lost but have been found. This is how we're all going to treat people we thought were dead but are back to life. And what a beautiful turn. Because this son said to his dad, I wish you were dead. Never realizing that he himself was the one who was dead. And it takes him all this route to get back home to realize that he himself, the son, was dead and the father to give him life again. Meanwhile, the older son is in the field. And when he comes near the house, see, both sons are not in the father's dwelling place. See? They're both sitting just a bit outside. He's in the field. When he comes near the house, he hears the music and the dancing. He calls one of the servants and says to him, what's going on? Your brother, hear the pronoun, your brother 
has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the word there in the Greek is the same word used in the Hebrew, shalom. Peace. He has him back and things are at peace again. He is safe and sound. He is at shalom. He's not in exile anymore. He's been brought home. So the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And his father now is again publicly humiliated a second time. He's humiliating himself when he runs after this derelict son, puts his robe on him and brings him home in front of everybody. And now he's going to leave the party where he is the host. It's his party. And he's going to go outside and talk to another son who's far off. And so often we talk about this parable as the parable of the prodigal son. And I love to think that it's the parable of the prodigal sons. Plural. They're both lost. They're both in the father's house and not in the father's house. They don't know what they have in their relationship with him. So the father goes out and he pleads with him. There's that seeking again. There's that finding again. That son has a bad attitude. He's a rich kid with poor attitude. And the father goes out to find him. Has he repented yet? Is this stuff to get? No. The father's seeking him. And he says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders and yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. And in the Greek there, the beginning part says, to me you never gave a goat. I mean, this is a, he's angry and he's right here. He's focused right here. You haven't done this to me. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, oh, isn't that an interesting pronoun choice? This son of yours, not my brother, this, your son, right? It's like when parents are fighting, like, did you hear what your daughter did today? There's a problem right away. This son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes. We didn't hear that in the story. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But you see already that the son has started to write his own narrative of what he thinks should happen, what he thinks is right, and that this man has, this son has not repented yet. This lost son of yours, he's not fixed it. He squandered your property, the prostitutes comes home, and you killed a fattened calf for him? What's wrong with you, dad? And he's still confused, right? The people, the servant was very clear. We're having a party because your father has found the thing he thought was lost. But he says, you did it for him. He doesn't understand the father's heart still. For many, grace is not just amazing, it's unbelievable. When this son is sitting outside, sulking and angry, and he looks and he says, how could you treat this son of yours that way? How, do you, how is it that you've not required him to fix it? Do you know the suffering I've gone through? The teasing that has happened to me in the community because this brother of mine did this. The fact that I lost half of everything. I'm the oldest son. My inheritance has been divided. Our property has been compromised. This guy's out of control. And, and apparently prostitutes and pigs and far off country. And he told you he wished you were dead. And you've just brought him in? That type of grace is unbelievable to me. The son is, is hurt. And he doesn't understand the father's actions. 
my son. The father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And Jesus ends the story. Now, we don't know how the son responds. We don't know if he says, oh, I get it now. And he gathers everything and he goes in and joins the party. We don't know if the younger son who squandered everything went back in and really fixed it. We don't know if he ever really understood all that God was doing for him. Are we having technical difficulties? Almost. Back. (laughs) This is a powerful experience to be able to see that God is moving in this community in a way that expresses grace and love to everyone, that invites everyone to come back in to the party. And as Jesus starts to tell this story, he leaves the end of the story open because he wants us to write it. What is our response to this type of love? What is our response to understanding that this is the God that is expressed throughout our Bible? What is our response to understanding that God is going to love people that are shabby and that we don't think deserve to come on in? What's our response to that? Who are we in the story? Through this parable, we learn that repentance comes with a price. Because the only way restoration is possible is if the father brings the lost home. Repentance has to happen only with cost, with effort. We also find out that Jesus has redefined that repentance. We think of repentance as what? I'm sorry and I won't do it again, right? And then we change our behavior. And there's, that's important. I'm not at all suggesting that that's not important. But in this story, Jesus shows us that repentance, restoration, is not possible unless there's someone, God himself, acting to bring that to happen. God himself being the finder. Remember, the sheep can't do anything to be found. The coin can't do anything to be found. And in both instances of the lost son, neither are doing anything that they can be found by. They're both still lost. But the father goes, meets them, and brings them home in powerful ways. Repentance gets redefined. No longer something a lost can do to ensure acceptance. Have you ever looked at your relationship with God and thought, you know, if only I do this, this, and this, then I can be sure to be accepted. Have you ever thought that way? Or maybe if I do this and this and this, then I'll be sure to get this thing I'm praying for. God only gives good gifts to people who are well-behaved. Somehow we get this theology pushing through. Somehow we get this understanding of what's required in order to be part of God's family. People should have their lifestyle all changed and figured out already. That, that's important, but that's not what brings you home. The father's the one that brings you home. The shepherd brings you home. The woman in the house searches and finds until you're found. 
These are the images that Jesus gives, not just for God, but also for what he himself is doing. Again, remember the setting. What are they upset about? What are they upset that he's doing? He's eating with them. And in every aspect of this parable, there's a party, and there's food, and there's eating. And Jesus sort of says, wait, wait, you're, you accuse me of eating with sinners? You're right. That's precisely what I do. But as a matter of fact, it's worse than you think. I don't only just sit down and eat with them. I rush down the road, pick them up, shower them with kisses, can't stop hugging them, drag them back into the house so that I can eat with them. It's much worse than you imagined. I'm doing all of that because that's what God the Father does. And repentance brings about celebration and joy for everyone. Joy at being found overcomes any remorse at having been lost. How many of us walk around this world saying, man, I just really screwed that up. Yeah, I've got it together now. But we let this thing that we did yesterday or 10 years ago or 20 years ago sit with us and hold us back and continue to define us when the father is sitting there saying, don't even explain. I just want to bring you home. And we get to live fully seated with him at the table celebrating and rejoicing. And the fact that we're in that house, that type of love, that type of connection, that type of pursuit, that's exactly what should overshadow any memory of having ever been lost. Anything we've done is forgotten because there's a big party. And it's not for us. It's not because we're awesome and we finally figured it all out. The party is for the Father, which is what Jesus constantly says. In the same way, there's this party going on in heaven right now because these people are coming home. So how does the story end? Because Jesus sets it right there, and he says, if you're upset about this, will you come in and join the party? And by the way, anyone who's sitting there thinking that there's all this us versus them stuff in the Gospels, you should realize right here in this parable that in this parable, if we understand the story, the Pharisees, the teachers of religious law, all those Torah teachers, they are sons in the Father's house with an inheritance. We all have things we need to work on. We all misunderstand the Father's love. We all forget his generosity. Whether you are the person who feels like you've done it all right and you have obeyed every command and you've done everything you think God's asked you to do and how dare he be so generous and so loving and so grace-filled towards this shabby person who still doesn't even have it together. And maybe they're making really embarrassing choices. And God's still blessing them, and God's still loving them, and he's still trying to wait to bring them home. That's the love of the Father. That's the love of Jesus. That's the love we're seeing push all the way through. And that's this parable that he's teaching. Let me explain who I am. I seek and save the lost. I sit with sinners, and I sit with you, righteous and not in need of repentance. And I want you to know that I love you and the Father loves you. And this is the kind of God that is expressed throughout the whole of our Bible. This type of God who loves us no matter what.
So how are you going to finish the story? It needs one more verse, I think. And so then I walked into the house and celebrated that the lost and the shabby had been found. So I walked into the house and celebrated because God the Father was thrilled. So even though I still stank of being out in the field, I sat and I celebrated with my father because he had found me again. Where are you in the story? Maybe you're in the community and you're watching it all happen. But for nothing else, I just hope that you realize that God is a God who runs after you. And he loves you and he pursues you and he seeks you and he can't stop kissing you. And he just loves you. He's very fond of you. I think God has this really thick wallet and it's got all the pictures of all of his kids in it. And he just loves to open it up and brag about each one of you. He just says, look at, look at my daughter here. Look how amazing she is. Look at this. Wait, wait, no, look at my son. Oh yeah, kind of a little shout. No, he's, I've, I, he was lost and he's, he's found. He was dead and now he's brought back to life. And I love this parable because the God I experience through this teaching is the God that embraces all of these things we care about. Even if we talk about spark, love, yes, check. We got that one down. Rescue, reconciliation, God's reputation in the community, and yes, even resurrection. All of that comes back. All of it's found in this parable because this parable Jesus teaches is about how God loves and how Jesus himself is loving the way God the Father loves, that he himself is saying, this is who I am. This is what I do. I seek and save the lost. Amen?